0: Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series brought to you by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of banking and finance. I'm your host, Michael Avery. uh, And in this series, uh, we've been exploring the evolving landscape of uh, financial services. Whether you're a banking professional, a financial enthusiast, or someone who just simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're certainly in the right place. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, or rather the software developers using the pseudonym, created the source code of what they thought could be decentralized digital cash. Their 2008 white paper shows a great fascination with technology, notably Cryptography, as we know now, which has really been the underpin of the rise of cryptocurrencies. And I think in many ways it was forged in the cauldron of public dissatisfaction with established finance following the global financial crisis, where large losses were socialized via bank bailout. Now, almost 15 years on and crypto assets are what everyone's really talking about. Crypto enthusiasts marvel at the rise of the crypto market, many feeling that they should take their chance on crypto investing, and we've seen uh, an entire ecosystem emerge from miners to intermediaries, all seeking to expand into digital finance. While we see those who would uh, consider themselves crypto evangelists promising heaven on earth, there are also skeptics and those who are concerned about the use of cryptocurrencies by bad actors in the system. So in fact, there's very little doubt that it's probably one of the most talked about, and one of the most interesting areas of finance. And recently, we saw a run in Bitcoin prices, which was sparked on the back of the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, finally granting permission to list the first crypto exchange traded funds. But there's also a much broader philosophical debate that is still being had around use case and importantly, what cryptocurrencies mean for the current Western rules-based system, which relies on transparency to counter threats from Rising terrorism targeting Western democracy to rising populism. There was a, an article out just the other day of, it was published as an expose by USA Today unveiling what it calls crypto's Nazi problem with few rules to stop them. How uh, white supremacists are uh, using cryptos to fundraise for hate. On the other side of the crypto coin are its benefits, the low cost of remit money, for example, and its appeal as an investment, digital gold, if you will. Now, someone who's witnessed this nascent financial instrument from the very beginning is the founder of South African crypto exchange, Valar Fazam Ezani, who ended up leaving the relative comfort of his job at leading merchant and investment bank RMB to pursue his dream of building the exchange. Zam, it's a great pleasure having you on the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you as always.
0: You're what can only be described as a world citizen. You've got work experience at the UN in Kenya. You've worked in Israel. You've worked at Deloitte Consulting in San Francisco, McKinsey and RMB. You speak English, French, Swahili and Farsi. A very interesting individual from that perspective. Can you just share with us your journey into the world of, uh, firstly, corporate and investment banking from those early days in your Bromfantine apartment, and what drove your interest in understanding this industry?
1: Absolutely. So it was about 2011, I had just left McKinsey. I had been a consultant for many years at McKinsey and Deloitte Consulting in San Francisco, and then came to South Africa in 2006, which is when I started with McKinsey. And post my stint at McKinsey, I really was a very privileged position to kind of look at the world and to decide what I wanted to do. I had Uh, Some savings in the bank, so I wasn't so pressed to go and find a job. And I took about a year off to kind of think about what I wanted to do. And at the time, you will recall, it was the time of the Greek debt crisis. We had a whole host of issues. Gold prices at that time were above 1,900 U.S. dollars per ounce. We're back in that in that category, actually higher than that now. But it was a time of uncertainty in the financial system globally, and it was obviously just in the shadow of the global financial crisis. And I felt that the financial system that we had was uh, tenuous at best and defective at worst. And I thought, well, how do I really understand and contribute to this world and try to make the world a better place? And I thought, let me try to get into the belly of the beast, so to speak, and understand finance from the inside out. And that's when I joined Rand Merchant Bank. Uh, on a wonderful program called the Class Off program, spent six years there to really try to understand, you know, what finance is. I spent time in private equity and global markets and leveraged finance and credit, group treasury, and a whole bunch of different kind of departments within the bank, which is a very privileged position in finance because finance is a very specialized industry. Mm. You get to know your particular industry extremely well, your silo very, very well. But you don't really know what's going on on the other side. There are very few people that have that perspective. So I was very lucky. And then I heard about Bitcoin. You know, probably at the beginning of my tenure at RMB, thought it was a complete scam initially. Didn't want to understand any more about anything more about it because I thought I'm not going to waste my time. But I had a very dear friend of mine a couple of years later uh, who I gave a call and I said, Adam, you know, you should be out of this industry it's a scammy industry and he said Farazam, i don't think you understand what it is you don't understand what blockchain technologies you don't understand what bitcoin is let me explain a couple of things to you and that was i think 2014 2015 and since then they say the rest is history
0: yeah and uh, it's interesting that you say that initially your your view was shifted by by your friend adam was it that shifted that perspective? Because you then also played a critical role in initiating and leading blockchain work at the RMB Foundry. Was it that turned your skepticism into one of, of interest and ultimately such support in founding Valor?
1: I think the main thing is that I realized that I didn't really understand our current financial system. I didn't really understand what money is. I didn't understand where it comes from how it's created how it's destroyed um all these different mechanisms that we kind of we don't really ask questions about anymore you know you're brought up you're told about banks and that's where money is kept and you got cash in your pocket or you go and deposit it at the bank and then it shows up in your app nowadays but you know i think one of the main things is this concept of double spending which very few people have heard about or know about it's a very simple concept but in brief and i will just take a minute to go into that which is that, you know, you have your phone, Michael, I'm on my phone speaking to you. These are physical devices that are created for digital media. And so, you know, we're talking through over IP at the moment, we are on your phone, you have got a folder for your pictures and for your photos, your photos and your music and your documents, all of these things are digital. Yet ninety-five percent of our money in the world, RAMs, dollars, etc., is actually digital. It's not physical notes and coins, and it's not backed by anything like gold or anything physical. It's purely digital ones and zeros on servers of banks and financial institutions. So the question is, okay, well, if you've got folder on your computer for all your other digital things, your music and your pictures, why don't you have a folder for this other this other digital thing called money? And the reason is double spending. Because if we have something that's digital, it can be copy and pasted at infinitum into infinity at a zero cost, and therefore everybody would be tempted to create more and more money, just copy and paste that money in their in their folder, and then what you would have is huge supply of the money. You have hyperinflation of the currency, it would crash, and so we don't allow ourselves to do that. And so the only people that can have digital money are the banks themselves. They, you know, create it. They through loans. We don't, as a society, trust banks necessarily, so we have regulators that oversee them. But this idea that, wow, I am at the mercy of a third-party institution, and if for whatever reason they don't like me or they get something wrong about you know, either my credit score or a complaint about me, and they cut me off the system, which actually happened a few years ago, where for some reason, this is before I was in crypto, I couldn't use my credit card for some reason. So for for about two days, I was... Cut out of the system from accessing any of my money. I thought this is a really, really poor system, and I need to have a bit more ability to host digital finance myself rather than just have the option of just having cash physically or digitally at the bank.
0: I think it's a very interesting explanation of the, the problem that cryptocurrency is, is trying to solve. And it reminds me, uh, Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek and his assertion that economists have largely made a mess of things. And he proposed the denationalization of money. He was wary of central banks. And I think what we've seen most recently since the global financial crisis in the U.S. Fed through various bouts of quantitative easing and the ability to print money, but that induces inflation and now reining it in through these record Interest rate increases, certainly the pace of them, has led to uh, further distrust of the way central banks are managing the global economy. But Hayek believed that, that market forces would naturally restrict the number of currencies in circulation. That's not what we see necessarily with cryptocurrencies, where we see thousands of cryptocurrencies available. What do you think about this, this issue with cryptocurrencies and uh, specifically? the proliferation of different types of cryptocurrencies the impact that that might have on its potential use into the future i mean is this just the early days or will we start to see something of a consolidation in the cryptocurrency space
1: that's exactly it we're still in the early days we've seen a cambrian explosion of ideas of different types of algorithms of different types of blockchain technologies to to really see what is best you know it's really an open field so you know we're a teenager, we're 15 years into this, you know, cryptocurrency ecosystem. Literally just this month actually is 15 years that, that, that Bitcoin is in existence. And so the best analogy I can give you is to go back to the you know late 90s where there was a Cambrian explosion of all sorts of tech stocks, internet stocks, web companies. You know, everything was on the web. That was the next big thing. And and you know, okay, come 1999 and 2000, we had this huge crash, and many of those companies went bankrupt and and, you know, one could have been tempted to say, oh, my goodness, what a- this was all a scam. And, you know, look at this, you know, uh, crashing and of value of all of these companies. But then 24 years hence, the most valuable companies in the world are predominantly companies that were established in that era, companies that are based on the Internet, companies like Facebook and Amazon, Google, et cetera, right? So we're still in that early phase right now, and there's still a tremendous amount of experimentation. And the beauty about this technology is that the people that make the decisions about what will be successful isn't a politician or a political party or a particular government. It is the people of the world that vote with their money about what they buy and what they sell, which is why we started Valor in the first place. It's a marketplace. The market will speak. And so while we at Valor we list over 80 cryptocurrencies ourselves on our platform we're very clear that we are not the deciders of what will be the currency or the asset that is chosen by the public we let the market forces decide the buyers and the sellers let them decide but my my very firm view is that over time many of these assets that you know that exist in the cryptocurrency space there are thousands of crypto assets many of them will not have any worth but the ones that do Will be some of the most valuable assets that the earth and humanity has ever known.
0: And why is that? Is it because they offer this solution to this problem, problem of double spending? Because ultimately, I mean, there are two ways to combat double spending. You either have a central clearing counterparty or you've got blockchain.
1: Yeah, for so a number of reasons. I think we have to take a little step back. But when, when you think about what money is, money should be the most frictionless asset that exists. It should be there to facilitate trade and nothing more. right? Of course, when I say nothing more, of course, store of value, a means of exchange, a unit of account. But my point of saying facilitates trade is day-to-day in society with money, you want money to be seamless such that you can focus on the commodity that you're buying, the property that you're buying, the goods that you're buying, the services that you're buying. You think about that leg of the transaction, you don't think about the payment itself. And so when you think about cryptocurrencies, they are divisible, they're durable, they're fun they're fungible, they're portable, they're scarce. These are the five qualities that are required for good money to work. And not only are they good at these qualities, they're the best that humanity has known. They're the best technology. Crypto is the best technology that that meets those five qualities as, as as better than any other asset that we ever had. The only, the sixth quality of money that isn't quite there yet is acceptability. Because money is much, much more than a financial or an economic concept. Money is a psychological and social phenomena. It needs to be accepted by the people. And so I'll take our, I'll take, you know, this discourse over the borders to Zimbabwe and to say You know, Zimbabwean Central Bank and the government was in full control of the Zimbabwean dollar until they weren't, until the people said, we do not have any respect for this currency. We don't believe it has value. We will not keep it. We will spend it at any chance we get. You had a hyperinflation. And in that scenario, the central bankers, the governments themselves will not even accept their own currency as payment for taxes because it no longer has any value.
0: That fundamental idea of trust in the financial system is immutable, isn't it? And why we've seen again, ever since Nixon depegged uh, the dollar from the gold standard, there has been an uneasiness around trusting politicians to do the right thing. And I suppose we can go down that rabbit hole for hours, but I want to speak more to some of the practical specifics around the efficiency. Of, of cryptocurrencies? Because if you look at I mean the authentication process is very important, but it involves this decentralized system of miners solving these very complex cryptographic problems, and it's energy intensive. How does this process compare to traditional banking systems in terms of efficiency and trustworthiness? Because I've had it put to me that it isn't the most efficient system, and specifically from an energy use perspective, that it is still a key stumbling block.
1: I'm very glad you brought this up because there's a lot of misunderstanding out there in society about this very topic. You know people kind of look at oh, how much consumption of energy is used by Bitcoin, and that's not good. you know how how can there be such a high level of consumption? The fact of the matter is, a, the traditional financial system uses a tremendous amount of energy, you know, in office buildings around the world, servers that's used, et cetera. We don't count that up and look at JP. Morgan Chase and Bank of America and all the other kind of large banks around the world and say, okay, well, how much energy are they using? That's the first thing. So it's not like apples to apples, first of all. Second of all, we could say as a society, you know, drying machines, you know, for our clothes, it takes so, so much, it's so intensive. Have you looked at the latest study that, you know, if you could just, you know, eradicate drying machines for our clothes and just hang them up and let the sun dry them, we have all that energy, it's such a bad use of energy that's a really silly response because you know we have energy it's about how we allocate it i would argue that there is no better allocation of resources and energy towards ensuring the integrity of the monetary system of the global of the global economy so is there some intensity absolutely and that is by design such that it cannot be corrupted by someone that says, "Oh, I've got an idea, and I'm in power, and I want to change the monetary policy." No, you cannot, because there is so much energy that is required to do that. That, rec- that, regardless of what your personal opinion is, you cannot garner the world's resources to go and now compete against what's actually required to keep the Bitcoin system, for example, up and running. So, I think this is a wonderful use of energy. Also. It is an energy that really incentivizes the cheapest energy that's used. And so normally when you look at energy, energy needs to be close to where human beings are because the transmission of energy is actually where the difficulty is. Generation of energy, we've got tons of energy on the planet Earth. We have much more energy than we know what to do with. But it's oftentimes in places where it's very difficult to transport that energy from one place to another to transmit that energy. But what Bitcoin does is you can go and put uh, you know a miner in some solar-powered area where there's lots of sun or some hydroelectric area where there's a lot of energy or geothermal or whatever it may be, and that energy gets converted into Bitcoin, and that Bitcoin can be transferred around the world now rather than the energy being transferred around the world. So there is incentives within the Bitcoin ecosystem to drive the most cost-efficient energy and actually to tap energy sources that would have otherwise been unuseful to humanity. So it is a completely ludicrous process and discourse that we have in society about this, because A, it's not apples to apples, and B, there's incentives that actually go towards using energy to that's cheapest around the world, and C, it's by divine, so that it can't, can't be corrupted.
0: Uh, on that point, uh, it can't be corrupted, uh, it also has the added benefit of a certain degree of anonymity and that has both pros and cons and I guess we're having this conversation at a time where market conduct rules and regulation are very important, certainly speaking about it a lot in South Africa because of being grey-listed by the Financial Action Task Force. How does How does this issue of market conduct get addressed within the industry? Also at a time where as I mentioned in my introduction, many are worried about cryptocurrencies uh, moving bad actors into a world where they can't be monitored or stopped or uh, at least tracked as efficiently as they can in the current uh, kind of rules-based system.
1: Yeah, so let's look at another industry, which is communications for a moment. And, and, and a number of years ago, a few decades ago, communication was was highly regulated it was very difficult to get any type of communication, whether, you know, whether a telephone where all, you know, important telephones that were going through government systems were tapped or, you know, your, your emails were going through a post office and those, post, those letters could be intercepted and read by the government, etc. And at the time, there was a big concern about you know, how can we use encrypted technology or encryption technology? to allow the encrypted messages between two different actors that cannot be intercepted? Isn't this a threat to society? Won't the illicit actors use this? Won't the terrorists use this? Won't the smugglers use this? And the answer is yes, they will use it. But the point is that we are very grateful that that the Internet exists in society because the benefits far outweigh the illicit use cases. And it's exactly the same thing with crypto. Yes, we're used to a society right now, by the way, that is completely out of control, in my view, about the amount of, of kind of oversight as far as, you know, KYC and all these things. I mean, by the way, we do KYC because it's a requirement. We're actually the most stringent in South Africa because it's a requirement. We fully believe in the rule of law. But I'm talking to you at a philosophical level, yep. which is to say, if someone wants to get through KYC, the people in society that incur the burden and the cost of KYC are not the bad actors. It is the good actors. It is the people that actually have to go and give their government IDs and all that kind of stuff. The bad actors will find ways. They'll get somebody else to use their ID, etc., etc., right? So the reason I'm sharing all of this is that, A, let us not lose sight of all these beautiful benefits of having a better financial system and get distracted by the same discourse that didn't make any sense when you look at it. If anybody says we shouldn't have had the Internet now because look at all the bad things that are happening on the Internet from illicit actors, right? You say, well, actually, there's lots of benefits, email and all that kind of stuff. That's much better. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, I do believe that actually there does have to be, despite what I'm saying about KYC, I think that KYC needs to be looked at, re-looked at as a society that's way beyond my scope of of influence, et cetera. But I do think we will need to look at that. But central actors that are providing services to the public, such as Valor, needs to be held accountable. We need to be held to the rule of law. Right now, the rule of law is that there has to be KYC. And so we do KYC and we do it very well, but not all other participants do that. That's the first thing. The second thing is beyond that, if you look at the FTXs of the world that you know, caused serious havoc last year or the year before now, actually, in 2022 and others, it's very clear that if you are have fiduciary duty towards your customers, you should be held accountable. There should be oversight over your operations to ensure that if you have the money that you say you do, then don't just say it, but show us or show a regulator or have some type of oversight. So we welcome that, by the way. We are right now in the final stages of being licensed in South Africa, which we're excited. That's valor. We have a Polish license where we're we're approved to offer not a Polish license, where it's basically an approval to offer crypto services in out of Poland, but for the entire for all of Europe. We're in that process with Mauritius we're in that process process with Dubai and then I will say one more thing on this topic which is a lot of people in the crypto space they say no they should, should prove to us that you have our money which is you know one to one it would say no we need to go a step further that's bare minimum of course we're not banks we can't lend out your money so we have to hold your money one to one but what there should be in addition to that is a capital buffer because if there's you know, an operational error or something like that, there should be some equity there that should cover, you know, some initial client losses, let's just say. We're not right now we're still in the discourse of one-to-one for, for most people, but I'm saying no, we have to go beyond that and provide more security and more benefits for, for customers. So we welcome that oversight, but it does need to be reasonable. It does need to kind of be efficient such that we allow innovation to prosper but also protect the best interests of society and the public.
0: Yeah, it's about striking that right balance. And and I guess, you know, given what we've just seen with the, the first few ETFs launched in the US, we are seeing an approach taken by the world's largest capital markets to, towards acceptance of cryptocurrencies and the efforts that are underway to ensure that that balance between innovation and adhering to a rules-based system that provides protection for, for the global good can be struck how significant is it that uh, sec chair gary gensler who was a, a crypto skeptic voted in favor of the approval of the etfs and um, and what do you see as the impact of these 11 applications for bitcoin etfs having on the broader market
1: it was a very significant milestone the reason that is is that you know for the first time in the united states the largest economy in the world that people can now go through their regular regular brokerage accounts and they can buy some Apple stock and then they can buy some S&P 500 ETF and they can also buy a Bitcoin ETF right now. And so what it does is it opens the channels in a very, very big way to the masses and to the public to say, if I want to get some exposure to this asset class, I can buy this ETF. So it's a very significant milestone. It was bound to happen, it's inevitable, but this is just one kind of milestone on many more to come. I think it's important to really recognize the, where we are again in this journey. Gold, which is you know the asset that's kind of been the monetary backbone for our financial system for 5,000 years, the global value of all gold above ground right now is about 14 trillion US dollars. If you look at Bitcoin itself today, the value of all Bitcoin in existence is about $800 billion. And so the differential between gold and Bitcoin is about a 17X differential. And so if you look at anything in the past that has morphed from being analog medium into a digital medium, the digital medium hasn't only gone and matched the analog level of of prevalence, but it's far exceeded it, whether you look at communication, music, videos, or whatever it may be. And so many people look at Bitcoin as the digital equivalent of the analog gold version. And so my view is that we're still looking at a huge amount of appreciation of the Bitcoin price. If you do a 17x from where we are, we're looking at a Bitcoin price of about 700,000 US dollars. And I think it will far exceed that in the next, you know, say, decade or two. And then certainly, I think we'll see a lot of volatility and appreciation in the short term as well. But my point is, really, we're talking about a teenager, a 15-year-old concept that has just been approved to be in all brokerage accounts you know, in the United States. And granted, there are some, just to show you, like places like Vanguard, one of the largest you know, money managers in the world, they have come out and said, yes, even though it's been approved, we're not going to actually offer it to our customers. And so many of our, the customers are leaving Vanguard and going to the likes of Fidelity, but my point is there's still so much skepticism that excites mm-hmm. me because it means we're still so early.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that the CEO of Better Markets called this at the time, if I recall, a, an historic mistake to allow these. So it shows you, Zon, there there's still some way to go to convince and persuade people that uh, cryptocurrencies are here to stay. I want to come back to the, the regulatory element. And and from your perspective, what more can be done by the industry to persuade and convince the skeptics that this financial innovation is the future and, uh, and won't pose the kind of significant threat to the rules-based system that, that so many are concerned about? Is it on-ramps and off-ramps that we maybe need to put more checks and balances in? What do you think would provide the next leg towards building confidence in, in cryptocurrencies?
1: Yeah, I think to be honest, it's it's not really about words, but it's about actions and deeds. And I think players like Valor and others that are in the industry that are trying to build a better financial system, we just need to keep our heads down and keep building. And, you know, the fact that when we send, you know, dollars or rands, whatever in our financial system, that it takes at best hours to receive, to be received at their destination. And normally maybe it could take us a, a few days and sometimes even more than that to, to arrive at its destination. That's just not acceptable in a world that has this wonderful global intercommunication system called the internet. And so we're working towards a world where value gets transferred across borders as quickly as an email does. We're not there yet. And if you think as a skeptic that we are in a world that is acceptable and this is how it's always going to stay, well, I have news for you. Whether it's Bitcoin or not, one immutable thing about the history of our financial system is that it is mutable. It will change. There's no question about that. The question is what will it change to? So if you're thinking we're gonna stay in this system, well, you're defying all the logic and history of our our entire existence as a human species. My view is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies offer the best alternative that I've seen. I keep asking myself, if it's not Bitcoin and crypto, what else? Nobody provides me with an answer for that. And so I know I'm using words now, but to answer your question, We just need to actually prove it. As an example right now, I do advise this to others, is like if you want to bring dollars into South Africa, as an example, you can use the financial system and you'll take $100. And I actually wrote a tweet about this tweet storm. You could bring $100 in and you'll probably arrive with $95 worth of rands in the system. And it will take some time. But because of the inefficiency of the system right now, if you bring $100 in using crypto, like you buy a stable coin and you send it in and you sell it on valor and then you sell it into rands and then you withdraw your rands into your bank account, which is all, by the way, fully legal, above board. It doesn't contravene any exchange control because you're bringing the, the value into the country. Well, $100 worth of, uh, you know, like $100 in the United States that you send via the system that I just talked about. Will lend you with a hundred and three dollars worth of rand because of the inefficiencies that exist in the in the current system, and at a much quicker speed. So I won't go into those details, but I encourage people to go and look at my my Twitter account, and you'll see all the details and the mathematics and all that kind of stuff there. But my point is, now I have skeptics that used to work with me at the bank that said the bitcoins scam. They said, "Oh, Farazam, can you can you actually show me how to send that that value? It's much quicker." And now they're the ones that are doing it, not me. So it's. The proof is in the pudding, as they say.
0: It really is. And having recently experienced that myself on my travels to Tanzania, I can say that is a very real use case that cryptocurrencies are solving for amongst many. But still, I do think, as you say, we're talking about a teenager and there's lots of growing up that certain actors in the industry have to do as well, given the likes of the FTXs, the Revix last year, all of those are sad and unfortunate examples of things that can go wrong and I guess um, just on that last point you know it is up to the industry to to really provide greater due diligence and and fiduciary responsibility as the crypto industry evolves and becomes an adult we're going to have to leave it there that wraps up this week's episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast with my guest Bazam Ezani, founder of Valar.com we'll chat soon
1: thank you so much
0: Before we go, uh, we'd like to extend our gratitude to our growing audience for tuning in. Please remember to share the content. You can find us on all good podcast platforms. Reach out to me at Badger on X or email the team at Monocle Solutions. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, don't forget to subscribe to our channel.